Heavenly Father, we've gotten a taste this morning of singing before your throne with people from every nation and tribe and tongue. We look forward to the day when it is truly every nation and tribe and tongue singing about how worthy and great you are. We praise you, and as we also sang, we believe the Spirit moves among us today. And so as we come to your word, would you, in your Holy Spirit, move in our hearts to show us the truth, to convict us, to encourage us, to make us more like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I believe that everyone wants to be happy. Whether consciously or not, you want to be happy. And we can see this in in people's eager pursuit of love, as we believe love will make us happy. We long for relationships, for someone to call our own. We can see how much people want to be happy in their desperate pursuits of wealth. Right? Our pursuit of, of money, of, of things, thinking that a better paycheck or a nicer home or the newest gadget will do it for us. And we can see a, a pursuit of happiness in how we spend the wealth that we make, in the way that we eat or drink excessively, in the rampant drug use in our world, in frosh week, in seeking out sex or porn and obsessions that we have with games, movies, music, sports, all kinds of pursuits. And even if you're sad or depressed, it's likely because you don't have something that you think will make you happy, or you have it, you've gotten it, but it hasn't provided the happiness that you thought it would. Even many suicidal people want to be happy and are willing to die to avoid unhappiness. For all of our pursuits, though, there seems to be a a happiness shortage in our world. You might remember the internet video, famous internet video with comedian Louis C.K. called Everything is Amazing and Nobody is Happy. And in it, he laments how incredible our life size are, incredible technology we have, and yet how entitled and ungrateful and a professor at San Diego University in life. Gene Twenge, last year a a professor at San Diego University, published an insightful article called What Might Explain the Unhappiness Epidemic? And based on thorough research involving one million teenagers, she found that teens who spent more time seeing their friends in person, exercising, playing sports, attending religious services, reading, or even doing homework were happier. However, teens who spent more time on the internet playing computer games, on social media, texting, using video chat, or watching TV were less happy. In other words, every activity that didn't involve a screen was linked to more happiness, and every activity that involved a screen was linked to less happiness. It's a fascinating study. But this is our world now, right? And in a world that has this happiness, unhappiness epidemic, and that everything's amazing, nobody's happy, what are we to do? And what is it that needs to change in our lives to become more happy? Is it as simple as noticing 
how amazing thing, everything is and appreciating it? Is it as simple as decreasing your daily screen time? Or is there something more? Something deeper than this world's joys? Something more lasting? I ask you today, do you want to be happy? I mean, it's, it's only natural to be happy, to want a happy life. I mean, I want you happy. If you came up to me and said you were feeling down, I would automatically do my best to try to cheer you up. But there's one other question we should ask. Should Christians even want to be happy? Is this something that we should pursue at all in life? And biblically speaking, I believe the answer is unequivocally yes. Yes, God wants us happy. If he didn't, he wouldn't begin and end history in paradise. And godly character that he wants us to grow now includes things like contentment and gratitude and joy, things obviously that would involve and play into happiness. And then the Bible even says, God richly provides us with everything in life to enjoy. Enjoy. So the question then becomes, are we pursuing happiness and finding happiness in the right sources, in the right places? If you would, please join me in opening up to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32. We'll mainly be looking at the next chapter, chapter 33 today, but we're starting at the end of chapter 32. And in this passage, I think we'll catch a glimpse of God's heart for his people, that he desires to bless us and not curse. His heart of love wants to bless us, and in those blessings, he wants us happy. We are getting so close to the end of Deuteronomy, we can taste it. (laughs) Next week's the last week. (laughs) If you are brand new with us, we've been in this for like a year now. Okay, so it's coming to the end finally. But the entire book was written for the Israelite people who were about to enter the promised land. It was a powerful reminder of where they'd been and where they were going. Now, many of the recent chapters have had a fairly pessimistic tone to them. Moses was like, no matter what I tell you now, I know you're not going to do it. You're going to fail. And God's going to have to step in and judge you. So I think it's great that Moses ends now with some optimism, some hope for the future in a prayer for blessing. As scholar Chris Wright says, there is something beautiful in the fact that after all the dark chapters of curses, challenge, and warning, and melancholic melancholic prediction, these last words are so rich in warmth, hope, and comfort. More than beautiful, it is the abiding theological truth of Deuteronomy. Its final words acclaim the God who eternally loves God's people and a people eternally saved by their God. So there's hope for Israel's future. But first, we get a sad reminder of Moses' near future. Start reading chapter 32, verse 48. Verse 48. It says, That very day the Lord spoke to Moses. 
Go up this mountain of, Abiram, of the Abiram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession. And die on the mountain which you go up. Gotta love that bluntness. <laughs> You'll die on the mountain which you go up. And be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Because, we wonder, well, why was Moses banned from the promised land? Here's why. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. And because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. And lost in the bluntness of God's orders here is that this was actually a very merciful with the land. <laughs> You're never getting in there. No, not at all. God was mercifully giving him a glimpse of a promise that was about to be fulfilled. It was going to be fulfilled. It's like, you've led them this far, but don't worry. I'll take it from here. Got it under control. Your efforts, your life, everything that you've done leading up to this point, it's not going to be wasted. I'm going to be faithful to bless my people. But why is this here? Why do we need yet another reminder of Moses not entering Canaan? Well, for one, Moses was about to give his deathbed blessing. And so it's helpful to know why he's on this deathbed. From another angle, this just hammers home a warning to everyone. That God wants to greatly bless you. But don't take these things for granted. Don't presume. Remember that not all of his blessings are guaranteed. Even Moses, one of the greatest men to ever live, was prevented from fully experiencing them. And one of the key lesson I think we should glimpse here is that, that God's blessing on his people can be limited by sin. God's blessing of us can be restricted, it can be blocked, limited by our sin. One time, the story goes, Moses had deliberately disobeyed God's instructions in front of all Israel. God had told him to, to speak to a rock. And have water flow from the rock. Instead, Moses got angry and smacked the rock instead. And God then punished him by saying he wouldn't be allowed to enter the promised land. If we think that God was too harsh with Moses, we either underestimate sin or we underestimate God's holiness. In Numbers 20, where this story is recorded, God said that Moses hadn't believed him. And here, God says that he had failed to treat him as holy in the midst of everyone else. So, by his actions, Moses was implying that obeying God didn't matter that much. And therefore, Moses would be a living demonstration that, yes, it did matter that much. There are legit consequences for sinning against the holy God. At the least, at the least, it keeps us from fully experiencing the blessings that God intends for us. Some of this is just common sense, right? Natural consequences. If you rebel against your authorities, like your parents, for instance, or another authority, your authorities can come down hard on you. 
If you look at porn, your relationships won't be as healthy. Your marriage could be a mess. If you gossip, you'll damage or even lose friendships. If you lie, no one's going to trust you. Those are just natural. But if you have unrepentant sin in your heart, the worst thing about it is that it separates us from God. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity or sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. He wouldn't have heard me. So if you do know of sin that's in your life right now that you have not left behind, what should you do? Repent of it. Confess your sin to the Lord. Ask for his forgiveness. Resolve to turn away from it. And I'm speaking to believers and unbelievers alike here. If sin is between you and God, you have to repent of it. Some of you Christians may wonder why your spiritual life is languishing. Consider whether there is sin in your life that's really keeping you from flourishing. You've got to get rid of it. Sin can limit God's blessings on us. Oh, well, Moses' death hangs, it's a bit of a pall over the rest of the passage. That's actually it for a negative tone. All right, in, in those days, when the head of a home was on their deathbed, they would often give a blessing to the members of their family or their household. And these blessings were essentially prayers. Their prayer saying, saying, may this happen to you after I'm gone. Asking God to do something in their life. And in this case, Moses assumes the position of a father to the entire nation of Israel and blesses each member of the tribes of Israel one by one. So you can picture Moses here maybe as an old man, not as spry as he once was, but he's, he's got, still got a smile on his face as he lifts his hands and blesses each section of people and prays for them. And I think that we can see God's heart in this as well. Because Moses really was basically God's representative. Verse 1 of chapter 33 calls him the man of God. His desires were God's desires here. And, and Moses starts out his blessing on Israel's future by reminding them of God's blessing in the past. I'll read it in a minute, but first we'll see the point. The main point I think we're going to see here is this. God's blessing on his people shines from his majestic love. God's blessing on his people comes through or shines from the description of what happened at Mount Sinai. Majestic Love. Moses makes this clear with a poetic description of what happened at Mount Sinai years before. Verse 1 says this. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Now, in a sunrise, have you ever seen the moment that the sun breaks over the horizon? How powerful that moment is? Like after hours of darkness, after the light just gradually crescendos in the sky, all of a sudden, the, the blazing fire of the sun dawns, pouring forth light. It's really, really neat to see. 
And Moses says that when God met Israel, it was like that dawn-breaking moment when he shone forth. So this was like Aslan showing up to save his people after the stone table cracked. Or like Gandalf showing up in the morning at Helm's Deep with an army behind him. So he came from the ten thousands of holy ones. It's his army with flaming fire at his right hand. So God is appearing with his heavenly hosts, his troops. But he was also mobilizing his earthly army at the same time. As Chris Wright comments, Sinai is remembered as the occasion when the awesome cosmic power of Yahweh was demonstrated and as the place from which Yahweh marched, marched forth victoriously at the head of his heavenly hosts and his mobilized earthly people. Look at this together, verse 3. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand, so they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you when Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. Now this answers the question. If we're such sinful people, why would God bless us? And Israel was certainly sinful. Sinai, remember, is where the golden calf took place. So, but did you see it? Why did God bless and save his people? Verse 3. Yes, he loved his people. He loved, his other versions say, that surely or indeed or oh, how he loved his people. He loved them, and, and notice that he, he made them his holy ones too. So he's coming forth with holy ones. Now he makes Israel his holy ones. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. And listen, brother and sister in Christ, this is how much God loves you as well. This is how he loves you. Despite you not deserving any of his love, it, it inexplicably and suddenly shone forth upon you, making you holy and leading you from darkness into light. 1 Peter 2.9 declares to us, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Christ, we are his loved ones and we are his holy ones held in his hand. Jesus promises in John 10, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do we come even close to grasping how great his love is? How great his love is for us? Or given the beauty of this picture, how majestic it is? When we truly see his love, we will naturally follow him, like Israel did. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand, so they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. And what this all led to was God becoming their king. Verse 5, thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. Not that he wasn't king before, but Sinai was like his coronation day in Israel. Notice that 
Moses again uses the name Jeshurun for Israel here. Same name he used in chapter 32 last week. Uh, these chapters actually contain three of the only four times Jeshurun is used in the entire Bible. And Jeshurun means upright one. Unlike last time, he's not using it ironically here. Israel really was following God as his holy people. For us today, all I want us to really see here is, is how majestic God is, how loving God is, and how that really should lead to us treating God as our king. Not our consultant or counselor or confidant, our king. We follow him. If you have a, a hard time believing how God loves you, I encourage you to look no further than the cross. Look to the cross where, where Jesus laid aside his majesty in order to love you, in order to, to make you holy, in order to bring you into the shelter of his hands where you'll never be cast out. Every blessing in our lives flows from his love. Yeah. An exception. You can't. And this is why Moses didn't just tell Israel, you know, go out and, and take hold of all these good things. No, he, instead he, he prays God's blessing on them. He knows it comes from God. We're going to go through the, this blessing pretty rapidly. I'm not going to explain everything as we go along. But these were blessings that were given to a specific people groups of whom we are not a part of in a very foreign and very ancient context, not to mention under the Old Covenant. So it's like, who are these 12 tribes we're going to read about? And why does this matter to me? Well, I want you to notice a general, simple principle that God's blessing on his people is abundant yet diverse. Okay? God blesses abundantly and yet not necessarily equally. It's abundant yet diverse. Okay? See if you can see those things come through these verses as these two things are true of us as well. Okay? Moses starts, verse 6, with the tribe that came from Jacob's oldest son, Reuben. Just very briefly, verse 6. Let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. Now that may sound a bit cold. <laughs> but a prayer for survival was actually a very practical one for Reuben, as they were about to settle down in an area that would be a war zone between Israel and Moab for centuries to come. So they needed to survive. Verse 7, number 2. This he said of Judah. Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him into his people. With your hands contend for him, and be a help against his adversaries. So he's asking God to fight for the people of Judah, to answer their prayers. Their, their fate, their fortune were in God's strong hands. Now, you may know some of Judah's descendants included King David and King Solomon, and eventually, Jesus, the Lion of Judah. And so, this prayer was actually answered in a powerful way through Christ. 
Hebrews 5, 7 tells us, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So God heard his prayer. He answered him and brought him back from the dead. This answers that prayer. The priestly tribe of Levi was up next, verse 8. And of Levi he said, Give to Levi your Thummim and your Urim to your godly one. Those are these stones that God set aside as sacred lots for the priests to use. Moses really was asking God to supernaturally guide Levi's leadership. Okay, give him these sacred lots to your godly one, whom you tested at Massa, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings on your altar. Bless, O Lord, his substance. Accept the work of his hands. Crush the loins of his adversaries, of those who hate him, that they rise not again. Notice in verse 10 that they were blessed in order to lead God's people in both teaching and in worship. So they were blessed in order to be a blessing. And so are we, as God's new royal priesthood. We're blessed to be a blessing. One really quick explanation for verse 9, where it talks about disowning family like it's a good thing. <laughs> there were at least two times in Israel's history that the Levites had to stay faithful to the Lord, even though their family members were deep in sin and had to be judged for that. And so the point was that loyalty to the Lord must come above loyalty to family if those ever stand in conflict. And by the way, Jesus calls for no less. Loyalty to the Lord must come first. Keep going. Verse 12. Of Benjamin he said, The beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. That's a picture of a mom or a dad holding their child protectively. Like they're, they're dwelling between their shoulders. But notice that, that the tribe of Benjamin could dwell securely because God would dwell with them. And again, same goes for us. Our, our very existence depends on God blessing us. So it's a good thing that you and I are now also beloved of the Lord through Christ. This is true of us. Verse 13 to 17. Uh, here Joseph is given the longest blessing, an extravagant one too, which really was for two tribes, as both Ephraim and Manasseh came from Joseph. So as you read this blessing... Look how God employs really like every aspect of creation in order to bless them. Verse 13. And of Joseph, he said, Blessed by the Lord be his land with the choicest gifts of heaven above and of the deep yield of the months or the moon, with the choicest fruits of the sun and the rich yield of the months or the moon, with the finest produce of the ancient mountains and the abundance of the everlasting hills, the land itself, with the best gifts of the earth and its fullness. Its fullness refers to anything on the earth, in the earth, plants, animals alike. But all of these aspects of creation were not the source of these blessings. 
No, these all came from, look at partway through verse 16, with the best gifts of the earth in its fullness and the favor of him who dwells in the bush. Now, who is that? Well, when Moses first met God, where did he meet him? In a burning bush. This picture provides this stark contrast to the expanse of the cosmos blessing them. The God over all of that had come near to them in a little bush. And, and from that bush, these blessings would flow. Like he came, the power of the Creator had been concentrated in that bush in order to spark Israel's redemption and salvation. It's a powerful picture. May these rest on the head of Joseph, on the pate of him who is prince among his brothers. A firstborn bull, he has majesty, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples, all of them to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. In other words, these tribes would become mighty in battle. The next two tribes, Moses says, would be blessed both at home and abroad. And it looks like they'd become somewhat of a, a seafaring people. Verse 18, and of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out. And Issachar, in your tents, they shall call peoples to their mountain. There they offer right sacrifices, for they draw from the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. We're up to the ninth tribe next in Gad. It says, and of Gad, he said, blessed be he who enlarges Gad. Who do you think that was? God. God enlarged him. Blessed be he who enlarges Gad. Gad crouches like a lion. Lion. He tears off arm and scalp. He chose the best of the land for himself, for their commander's portion was reserved. And he came with the heads of the people. With Israel, he executed the justice of the Lord and his judgments for Israel. Some of that might seem a bit graphic to us, but again, it's just saying the tribe of Gad would be strong militaristically. So too with Dan likened to a feisty lion cub. Verse 22, and of Dan he said, Dan is a lion's cub that leaps from Bashan. Next, Moses uses some lofty language to bless Naphtali. And of Naphtali he said, O Naphtali, sated with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, possess the lake in the south. So they're be so full of blessing, it'd be so abundant that they'd be totally sated or, or satisfied. And finally, the twelfth tribe, Asher, is said to be the most blessed of all Jacob's sons. It says, and of Asher, he said, most blessed of sons be Asher. Let him be the, the favorite of his brothers. Let him dip his foot in oil, meaning their oil would be so abundant it would stream down the hills. Your bars shall be iron and bronze, and as your days, so shall be, or so shall your strength be. So, those are the blessings that Moses prayed or proclaimed, pronounces over the tribes of Israel. And we go, what in the world are we supposed to do with all these blessings? Well, remember, the two main things I wanted you to notice they were. Okay? Abundant and diverse. Let's start with diverse. God, 
blessed each tribe to, to quite the varying degrees, didn't he? On the one hand, Joseph was to be blessed with the, the best gifts, and, and uh, Asher was to be the most blessed, the favorite of everyone. Benjamin gets called the beloved of the Lord. Naphtali is going to be full of blessing. But on the other hand, Dan got some cryptic comment about being a lion's cub. Issachar got lumped in with another tribe's blessing. And Reuben gets promised survival. That's it. <laughs> How would you feel if you were some of these tribes? Some might be led to feel special and superior, while others could easily feel jealousy and envy, inferiority, which is exactly how we respond to God's blessings in our lives. Some of us get prideful and entitled, and we think these blessings are ours by right which only leads to, to self-righteousness, to feeling superior to other people. And others of us don't seem to get the same blessings that other people do, and we end up envying and, and coveting their blessings, their, their success, their smarts, their salary, their home, their, their significant other, their kids. Many of us can swing back and forth, can't we? From superiority to inferiority all the time. What we need to learn is contentment. With all of God's blessings, with whatever God blesses us with. In Philippians 4, Paul claims, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the secret, the secret of getting out of this comparison trap is to see what you have in Christ. See how blessed you are that, and to see that really we have all been graciously given abundance in him. And that leads to the, the second thing that we can take to heart about all these blessings. In so many ways, we have been blessed far more abundantly than these 12 tribes were. Simon Manchester helped me see this, saying that in the Old Testament, the blessings that were promised by God were usually temporary and outward. Temporary and outward. The New Testament tends to internalize and eternalize the blessings. So we might not be promised an awesome farm or great military exploits, but we are promised that, that God will dwell in us and that he'll change us and, and grow us and that we'll have victory over sin and death and hell, and Satan, forever. 
Just like Israel, we are fully dependent on the Lord for our well-being, for our blessings. But more than Israel, in Christ, we are promised every spiritual blessing from heaven. That's what Ephesians 1 tells us. Every spiritual blessing is ours. So rejoice. Right? He has heard our voice. He's fought for us. We've been given the choicest gifts of heaven above. And now we're sated with favor, full of the blessing of the Lord. As Moses concludes his blessing, he can't help but, but bless one more name. The Lord's. In verse 26, he, he stops addressing individual tribes and he turns back to all of Israel but he doesn't just keep marveling at all the blessings they're getting, like, wow, there are no greater blessings on earth that you're going to get. No, but look what he does marvel at. Verse 26. There is none like God. There's none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Now this is going to reveal the final and I believe the most important point from this passage to see. That God's blessing on his people is God himself. God's blessing on his people, the greatest blessing is God himself. And the last verses of this chapter are Moses' last recorded words on earth. And they are all about how incomparably awesome God is. There's none like God, O Jeshurun, who, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. So, so no matter how strong God might make his people, God would be the one swooping in to save the day. And then you might think Moses would talk about how Canaan is going to be their forever home. But no, the eternal God is your dwelling place. The eternal God is your dwelling place. Underneath are the everlasting arms. God's going to be their true, their everlasting home. God was greater than the promised land. It sounds so simple, but it's so easily forgotten that God, is, God himself is greater than God's blessings God himself is greater than God's blessings. And Moses then shifts his language from present tense to past tense, imagining himself as if he's in the future after God's already finished the job that he's about to do. It's a done deal. Probably through verse 27. And God thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy so Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens dropped down dew. Daniel Block comments that these verses describe the Israelites' basis of security and that this is indeed a picture of, of total security. That, that Yahweh rides above Israel. He upholds his people from below and he marches on ahead of them. In verse 28, you see that again. He's still predicting the future as if you're standing there. And it's a picture of really the, the fulfillment of all the promises of Canaan. So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone, unbothered. And so given Canaan wine, whose heavens dropped down dew. And so given all that God had done for them, Moses finishes with a flourish. 
Happy are you, O Israel. Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? The shield of your help, the sword of your triumph, your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. Israel's just so uniquely privileged to have God as their God. Happy are you, O Israel. Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? And we wonder, is this also true of us? It's even more true of us. Right? We can easily say, happy are you, O Christians, a people saved by the Lord. I can easily say, I think I can rightly say, happy are you, O Calvary, a people saved by God. Our uniqueness, our privileges, our status, our identity doesn't rest in us. It rests in the Lord and in the good news of Jesus Christ saving us. Nothing else should fill us with joy like this does. We needed saving. Our, our enemies of sin and death were too strong for us. We couldn't do it. But he came himself as our shield of help, as our sword of triumph. And one day, we'll experience our enemies, like our sin, entirely defeated and under our feet. A.W. Tozer says, The people of God ought to be the happiest people in all the wide world. People should be coming to us constantly and asking the source of our joy and delight. Now, that doesn't mean we're never sad or sorrowful. Not at all. As John Piper puts it, God comes to us in this fallen world of futility and pain and death and sorrow and moral collapse. It's a sad world. How can you live in this world and not be sad? Of all people, Christians should grieve most deeply at our world while remaining the happiest people in it. And that is not a contradiction. I stumbled upon an old Charles Wesley hymn this last week, which is based on this text, called None Like Jeshurun's God. I don't know the tune, but here are some of the words. None is like Jeshurun's God, so great, so strong, so high. Lo, he spreads his wings abroad, he rides upon the sky. Israel is firstborn son. God, the eternal God, is thine, he's yours. See him in thy help come down, the excellence divine. Blessed, O Israel, art thou. What people is like thee? Saved from sin by Jesus now. Thou art and still shalt be. Jesus is thy sevenfold shield. Jesus is thy flaming sword. Earth and hell and sin shall yield to God's almighty word. Earth and hell and sin shall yield to God's almighty word. That, that's not just a declaration of what God has already done in Jesus. That's a preview of coming attractions. And that's what's going to happen one day. Everything is going to yield to Jesus. 
Everything is going to come under God's rule. And so I ask one final question again. Do you want to be happy? If so, go after God. Go after God with all your heart and your soul and your strength. Seek first his kingdom. Find in, in Jesus all you truly ever need. After all, only, only he can satisfy you and give you a happiness that this world can never seal. Let's pray. Lord, do this in us today, we pray. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. Reveal your love to us and help it overwhelm us till our hearts can't help but pour forth praise that there is none like you. There is none like you. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.